0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about logic, reasoning, the flow of argumentation. How do you know if an argument is logical, rational? How do you know if it's irrational, if it's a fallacy of logic? And the text that we're going to be using today primarily is going to be this Philosophical Foundations of a Christian Worldview. And that is by J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig. Very good book. I suggest everyone go out and get it. This is uh, a digital copy I have. But I do have the hard copy as well. I think one of my family members ran off with it. So if you're in my family and you have my book, like it back, please. Thank you very much. But very good book. We're going to start this episode by listening to actually a little clip. There's an atheist who engaged Matt Slick, you know, our favorite uh, punching bag here on the program. Matt Slick, he's a very fallacious guy. So he's always like, oh, my emotions. If, If an argument makes him feel bad, if a conclusion makes him feel bad, then he'll reject the premise. And so that's kind of an emotional way of thinking. It's not rational and it's uh, the moralistic fallacy actually. If you go back to our fallacy episodes, you can learn all about these these types of fallacies and hear examples of when they've been used in the past. But this atheist, his name, let's see if I can't find it real quick. This is Alex Malpass and he explains very calmly, rationally, and coolly to Matt Slick that the logic logic doesn't depend on the content of the statements. A logical argument is more about the form of the argument rather than the content of the argument, if that makes sense. You should be able to plug any sorts of uh, phrases, statements into the variables of logic and a logical argument is still valid if that logic flows. Of course, your premise might be incorrect and uh, there might be incorrect, incorrect uh, statements within your logic. But the logical argument itself is valid whether or not the statements themselves are valid. It's, it's the form of the argument. Logic is about form. Logic is about things that must be true if other things are true. It's not about the content. It works with any content. But let's listen to him just to calmly explain this.
1: Logic isn't about the content of what you're saying. It's only about the form of what you're saying. It doesn't like so... That's why I'm saying, I'm always trying to say, look, forget about God or not God, whatever. Just think about it as P or not P, because arguments are valid if if the form of the argument is valid. It's not valid if the content of the argument makes it valid. In fact, that's really the essence of the fallacy of special pleading, is if you say, well, it wouldn't be valid, but I'm talking about subject matter X, and that makes it valid. Right? The whole point of... But the reason why that's a fallacy is that logic doesn't care about content. It only cares about form. So look, if I say to you, all A's are B, all B's are C, therefore all A's are C, that well, doesn't matter whether I'm talking about, you know, it doesn't matter what A and B and C refer to as long as you understand the logical relations between them. It's about well, that, that's form. for validity, though. But yeah, we, we still have whether it's true, and, and therefore content does matter. But truth isn't logical, I mean... No, 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 I mean, no, no. What, well, what I'm saying is, is we, can, we can have a logically valid statement that's not true. Yes, but, but my point was that when, if, if what you're talking about is logic, then all that matters is whether the argument is valid or not. And when you're talking about that, all that matters is whether the form is valid, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. And you well, it, 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 if you're, it does matter whether your premise is true, correct? Not for whether it's valid. No, not for. I agree, not for validity. Right, so all not that logic validity. cares about is whether it's valid. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether it's true. It, you know, I don't care whether it's not the case that all A's are B. Maybe it's false that all A's are B. I'm just saying if it is true, then blah blah blah. I keep going from there. I'm just saying you know the form of the argument carries it forwards, not the content. And and that that's really a, that's what if you want to think logically, that's what you have to do. You have to. Abstract, to use Matt's favorite phrase, abstract from the content. Just think about the form.
0: But let's turn to a different atheist. Let's turn to William H. Smith, Atheism, The Case Against God. Now, if you're a Christian and you don't have this book and you haven't read this book, you need to pick it up and read it. You can find free copies all over the place on the internet. You could buy very cheap on Kindle, this book. You could buy the hard copy fairly cheap. I think I got a hard copy as well. Very early on in my college career, this is a great book that uh, had, it, it listed all sorts of problems with Christianity, with prophecy that we keep, uh, we've talked about prophecy before on this program, how the New Testament authors misuse, quote unquote, misused Old Testament references, and this is hammered on in this book. Also, logical flaws with uh, traditional attributes of God, these negative attributes and how they contradict with each other. A very good book in that respect. But he also talks very well about the laws of logic. And he points out three very critical axioms for even just talking about anything. What, how do we know things are true? And these are axioms. And an axiom is something that is just true. There's there's it's not a created thing. Like so when Christians say, oh God created the laws of logic, Matt Slick will say this too. Uh, God must have created the laws of lo- No, these, these are not things. They're not things that can and can't be created. They're not arbitrary. And uh, as, as soon as we start going through this, hopefully it, it's very clear to you that these are not things to be created. The very act that these might be arbitrary undermines them even being created because you need the laws of logic in order to, quote unquote, create the laws of logic. Law of identity. For things, the law asserts that A is A. And when we're dealing with laws of logic and we're dealing with uh, even this other book we're going to, these are variables. So when you see these letters, a letter is a variable. It could stand for any phrase, any concept. A is A. A cat is a cat. That should be, you know, very, very, uh, very obvious to us. God is God. If anything is itself. For, for propositions, if a proposition is true, then it is true. Yeah, So it's, it's straightforward. You, you think this is created, you think that God had to create the law of identity, that doesn't make any sense. So if it's true that God created the law of identity, then the law of identity wouldn't exist to, to make that statement true that God's creating the law of identity. And so the law of identity itself might be false. Understand how that works? Law of Excluded Middle. For anything, anything is either A, or not a for propositions a proposition such as p is either true or false statements are either true or false if it's an actual statement it's not just a jumble of words that doesn't make sense if it's if it's about a a real concept it's either true or false and anything is either a or not a everything's either a cat or not a cat everything's either uh, a youtube video or not a youtube video it, and we can't be playing word games either. So you can't just say, well, it's, in one way it's a cat, in one way it's not a cat. Like a cat could be like an animal, but a cat could also be a piece of machinery. So it's it's kind of a cat, but it's also not a cat. No, you're, you're switching words. Just You have to be consistent in your terms, your your propositions, and uh, you can't just change meaning halfway through through these laws. So anything is either A or not A. That should be pretty self-evident. Number three, third law, axiom of logic, law of contradiction or law of non-contradiction as commonly referred to. For things, nothing can be both a and not a. God is both, not both God and not God in the same time, at in the same sense. For propositions, a proposition P cannot both be true and false. So you don't find propositions... They're both true and false. When people try to claim that for propositions, usually they say, well, it's true in this sense, but it's false in this sense. So you're they're playing the equivocation game. But no statements either both true and false at the same time in the same sense. You know, these, these are just axioms of logic. And they, they have to exist uh, by necessity. Th- these are not things that can be created. If these are arbitrary and can be created then their creation themselves invalidates them because they're not true to apply to themselves. They're axioms, axioms of logic. And Smith really understands this, and he hammers it home. A very good chapter, very good book. People should go out and read this. But we're going to switch over to William Lane Craig, and he's a Christian philosopher who we've had issue with on certain issues on this program. We've talked about him. We've responded to him. But when he talks about logic and reasoning and logical arguments, he's actually very good. Even better than, I would say, my college honors courses on the issue. Let's see, I got here, Knowledge, Readings, and Contemporary Epistemology. And I'd say William Lane Craig's book is probably better than college-level honors courses in logic and reasoning and thinking. It's just that good. So let's, let's take a look at that real quick here. Switching over real quickly to the William Lane Craig, J.P. Borland book, we, we get a whole chapter about deductive and inductive arguments, where they describe just the basic facts of how arguments work, the flow of logic, the reasoning. And they give us this, this nice handy formula in which to test out these rules of logic. Remember, in, in the rules of logic, it doesn't matter the content of what you are claiming is true. You just look at how it flows. You look at the formula. If A, then B, A is true, then B is also true. Uh, A or B is true, B is false, therefore we're left with A being true. you, You got those formulas and they play out. So anytime someone says, I got this logical argument for you, if you can't map it out with variables to see the truth of the argument, they're not making a logical argument. They're making maybe some sort of emotional appeal. They're making some sort of fallacy. It's not a logical argument they distinguish in this book between deductive arguments and inductive arguments of course deductive arguments they say that the premises guarantee the truth of their conclusions and then they say in a good inductive argument the premises render the conclusion more profitable than its competitors exploring the deductive logic they write this first a good argument must be formally valid that is to say the conclusion must follow from the premises in accord with the rules of logic Logic is the study of rules of reasoning. Although the word logic is often colloquially used as a synonym for something like common sense, logic is, in fact, a highly technical subdiscipline of philosophy akin to mathematics. It is a multifaceted field consisting of various subfields such as sentinel logic, first order predicate logic, many value logic, modal logic, tense logic, and so forth. They go on to write this, an argument whose conclusion does not fall from the premise in accordance with the rules of logic is said to be invalid, even if the conclusion happens to be true. Therefore, if Sherry gets an A in epistemology, she will be proud of her work. So you got something that leads to another thing. So that's not talking about the truth of any of those things yet. You have to introduce that on a different line. So Sherry is proud of her work. So that's a given for this equation. And does, does that fit into the formula that we just talked about to render us any truth? It doesn't. Three, therefore Sherry got an A in epistemology. You, you see how that's backward reasoning. It doesn't work. Uh, if Sherry gets an A in epistemology, then she'll be proud of her work. She is proud of her work. There, there's other ways to become proud of your work just instead of uh, just getting an A in epistemology. Uh, just because getting the A will lead her being proud of her work doesn't mean that that's how she got to that stage in in our line number two, that Sherry is proud of her work. So let's read what they say here. All three of these statements may in fact be true, but because three does not logically follow from one and two, this is an invalid argument. From the knowledge of one and two, you cannot know that three is also true. The above is therefore not a good argument. So what you have to do is you have to take those uh, stated premises and you have to plug them back into the formula to see if, if they flow anywhere, if, if it results in a logical, a logical conclusion. If not, that's an invalid argument. That's a really good reason why we use variables instead of these statements, because it makes it easier to flow. If A, then B, B is true, that tells us nothing about if A is true or not. You can't reason backwards like that. They write this, second, a good argument will not only be Formally valid, but also informally valid. As we shall see, there is a multitude of fallacies in reasoning, which, while not breaking any rule of logic, disqualify an argument from being a good one. For example, reasoning in a circle. Consider the following argument. If the Bible is God's word, then it is God's word. The Bible is God's word. Therefore, the Bible is God's word. So this is reasoning in a circle. It's also assuming your presence. It doesn't give us anything useful. And therefore, it's, it's just a really bad argument. A lot of these informal fallacies in informal argumentations are going to be those fallacies that we talked about on our fallacy program. A lot of moralistic fallacies, a lot of assuming what you want to be true is true. A lot of uh, a non sequitur would be a formal fallacy where, where if you plug stuff into the formula, you're getting results that your formula doesn't say. So that's a non sequitur. But uh, your moralistic fallacies, your emotional fallacies, your fallacies, which assume because something is true, then uh, some wider scope is true. Let's say God knows one thing in the future, then assuming he knows all things in the future, well, that doesn't logically follow, does not logically follow. There's nothing that says if God knows one thing in the future, then he must know all things in the future from time, eternity, nothing like that. Nothing like that. So that would that's the difference between an informal and a formal violation of the laws of logic. So let's talk about this uh, third thing that they point out. The premise in a good argument must be true. An argument can be formally and informally valid and yet, let, yet lead to a false conclusion because one of the premises is false. For example, anything with webbed feet is a bird. A platypus has webbed feet. Therefore, a platypus is a bird. You see, that follows the laws of logic. You got something that says anything with webbed feet is a bird. So that means you could take anything with webbed feet, plug it into that formula, and your output is that thing is a bird. Logically valid. But it is invalid in the sense that the premise is false. They write this There are animals other than birds that have webbed feet. Therefore, this is not a good argument for the truth of the conclusion. An argument that is both logically valid and has true premises is called a sound argument. An unsound argument is either invalid or has a false premise. Skipping forward in his chapter so we could skip all the bulk of the text, we go to his chapter summary, and here he talks about the different uh, rules of logic that are true. And these are also necessarily true. These are axiomatic in themselves, and you, you'll kind of understand when we go through these and just talk about them. They'll, they'll seem common sense. They'll seem like something any, any kid should intuitively understand. These are things that are true. So how about this, rule number 1, modus ponens. If p equals q and p is true, then q is also true. You see see how that works. So your 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 statement, your first statement is if p is true, then q is true. And your second statement is p is true. Therefore, q is true. You just plug plug the stuff in and it, it works. Rule 2, modus tollens. If p equals q and Q is not true, then P also is not true. Do you see how that works? Because if P was true, then Q also would have been true. Because we know that Q is false, we all know that P also would be false because that would have made Q true. Rule three, hypothetical syllogism. P leads to Q, Q leads to R, therefore, P leads to R. You you could cut out the middleman. It doesn't matter, so P leads to Q leads to R, that means P leads to R. You could just, just skip the middle. Just combine those things. Rule 4, conjunction. P is true, Q is true, therefore P and Q are true. Rule 5, simplification. If P and Q are true, then P is also true. If P and Q are true, then Q is also true. You could If there's two things that are true, that means just one of them by themselves also true. Rule six, absorption, if P leads to Q, then P leads to both P and Q being true. Addition, if P is true, then either P or Q are true. See that how that works? It's not, it's not an exclusive or. When you got that little V shape as we're looking in the formula, if you're watching the YouTube version of this, the V is an or and it's not an exclusive or. It's not saying either P or Q only one of them has to be true. It's just saying one of the two are true. And because we already know one of the two are true, that's a true statement. Disjunctive syllogism. This is what Matt Slick likes to appeal to. He he uses these words and probably makes them feel good. But uh, P or Q, not P, that means Q. So if P or Q are true, and then we understand that P is not true, then that just leaves us with just Q remaining. Likewise, if P or Q are true, and then we know Q is false, that leaves us with just P remaining. Constructive dilemma. P leads to Q, and R leads to S. So P or R are true. That leads us to either Q or S or both. It's not an exclusive or being true. And then in addition to these nine rules, and these nine rules are just kind of the the basis of logic, how logic operates, how logic works, you'll be able to use these rules to form larger, larger logical flows. So P is equivalent to not, not P. So if not P means that P is false and P is a premise, remember we're using variables. If the premise is not, not false, that means the premise is true. If P or P, then we understand that P is true, because either P is true or P is true, one or the other, or both, uh, not n- neither of them, so we could shorten that to just P is true. P leads to Q is equivalent to not P or Q. See how that works? So if P leads to Q, then uh, if P was true, Q would also be true. And not P or P is necessarily true. You know, our axioms, our basis laws of logic, as we went over in the Smith book, either something is true or it's not true. Either P is not true or P is true. And you could change that because P leads to Q. Either P is not true or Q is true. And of course, P leading to Q is equivalent to not Q leading to not P. There's a whole section on modal logic, we'll kind of skip over this, but it just deals with propositions that uh, are necessarily true or if it's uh, just possibly true. So if something's possibly true, that means it's possibly false, you know, and and uh, those little symbols are the square we're seeing here in the formula and then the diamond shape. The square means necessarily true, and the diamond means not necessarily true. There's a whole section on that but uh, that'll, that'll take uh, too much time and not quite worth it. Let's scroll up. And he actually has this really good section that talks about how we kind of know the truth of things that aren't quite definitive. And he says this, from the pool of live options, we then select the explanation that if true, best explains the data. So what we try to do as logical rational beings is try to look for the solution that best fits all the available data that we have. And as we gather more data, we're able to better better zero in on what's the most probable truth. And uh, I, I like talking like this a lot better than than those people who say this is necessarily true. Uh, Calvinists, they go to the verse that God does not change. What this necessarily means is that he's absolutely immutable and he can't change. He's outside of time, pure simplicity. Uh, I like to say, well, you know, that, that might that might be a reading that's valid, might. But since context defines meaning, we have to look for the context. What contextual clues might lead you to that possible, not probable solution? And since the contextual clues of that verse in Malachi 3 are actually about God changing, uh, it's, it's probably not true what they're saying about that verse, that it's about his absolute immutability in the platonic sense. So let's read this. Just what criteria go towards making the explanation the best is disputed, but among commonly acknowledged criteria will be properties such as the following Explanatory scope. The best hypothesis will explain a wider range of data than rival hypotheses. Explanatory power. The best hypothesis will make the observable data more epistemologically probable than rival hypotheses. Plausibility. The best hypothesis will be implied by a greater variety of accepted truths and its negation implied by fewer accepted truths than their rival hypothesis. Is. This is this is actually pretty funny because Calvinists a lot of times rely on special pleading. You got to read the Bible in this special light that no other literature applies to and only then can you see our truth. So you got to just discount what the scholars say, discount what the laymen say and it's it's our own truth. That's not very plausible. That's that's special pleading. Less ad hoc. The best hypothesis will involve fewer new suppositions not already implied by existing knowledge than rival hypotheses. According with accepted beliefs, the best hypothesis, when conjoined with accepted truths, will imply fewer falsehoods than rival hypotheses. And then, of course. Comparative superiority. The best hypothesis will exceed its rivals in meeting conditions one through five that there's little chance of a rival hypothesis exceeding it and fulfilling these conditions. You now basically is what, what's the most likely truth? What, what does our evidence lead to? What does our combined knowledge and experience tell us about how the world works and, and what's the most probable solution? So if if you and I are human beings, we understand human communication, we're not going to just apply this arbitrary new standard that someone made up in their head to, for example, the Bible, because that's that's not probable. It's It, it doesn't have any explanatory power. You're just assuming things. And what makes that more valid than some other person using the same methods to different results? They say, oh, our cult has has the correct reading of the Bible. I know the Bible says this on the face value, but that's just spiritual. So we just got to spiritualize the text. Yeah. If you read read Philo, uh, his works, and he just takes straightforward historical narrative in Genesis and just applies the weirdest, strangest definitions. So, so what makes the Calvinist right and Philo wrong about the reading of those passages if they both em- it, employ this this thing where they each have special knowledge that uh, isn't available to the wider audience. It, this non-falsifiable special pleading. It's, it's not rational, it, it, it doesn't work. So this is just kind of the basics of logic. And uh, as you can see here, there's a lot of complicated formulas, just, just an introduction to how logic works. And it's, it's useful just so you understand what's a rational argument, what's a logical argument, And when people are just using those words because uh, they don't understand, they're just using logic as a replacement for common sense. And their common sense, as we often see, is just based in their emotion. Oh, it's common sense that God must know everything in the future because because, uh, you know, that's what we see as God. That makes him the greatest being when they're just assuming their premises without proving their premises. All right. So hopefully you like this podcast. I know this is a a lot, a lot uh, deeper than we usually get this a lot more mentally challenging, but, but it'll work. It's a good podcast. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to send that to God is open questions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.